Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to take a few moments to make sure that we are adequately prepared for the study of God's Word. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, we break fellowship with God. That rapport that is breached means that God the Holy Spirit is no longer operating in terms of our spiritual growth, our forward momentum, and our sanctification. When we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, at that instant we are forgiven and cleansed of all sin, and we are restored to fellowship. The filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit kicks back into gear, and He begins to work not just to bring us back into fellowship, but to take the doctrine that is in our soul and to use it in our lives to produce spiritual growth and forward momentum. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, the Scripture says that Thy Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that it is in the light of Your truth that we see light. Therefore, we understand that Scripture is the ultimate determiner of truth. And that we come together to worship you by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And that means that all that we do, what we think, what we say, what we sing, all comes under the umbrella of your divine revelation, which is complete and sufficient for all things. Now, Father, as we direct our attention to your word, may we be reminded that this is the change agent you have ordained in history. As Jesus prayed in the garden, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. We pray that we might be willing to submit our thinking to the absolute truth of your word as we study it this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 4, verse 24 tells us that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him by means of the spirit. That should be capital S for Holy Spirit. And by means of truth. We're focusing on that second aspect the last few weeks, for those of you who are new or visiting this morning, Sunday morning is our time of studying the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 focuses on this heavenly scene 
where the four living creatures, where the 24 elders and the angels are all gathered before the throne of God, and they are worshiping Him in song. And we are introduced to that word worship that we come to in the New Testament. So we have taken our time for about the past five or six weeks to explore that particular doctrine, the doctrine of worship. It is a doctrine that is controversial today. There are new trends that have come into evangelicalism as a broad term in the last 40 or 50 years. So that typical Sunday morning worship in your more conservative Bible-based churches today is very, very different from what it was 40 or 50 years ago. Yet, the worship that you had in a church 40 or 50 years ago was not that different from what had characterized the worship in a local church 100 years before that or 200 years before that or 300 years before that. There's been a massive change that has taken place, and we have to evaluate that and learn to think critically. And and I've been pleased by the fact that although I have a tendency to resist getting focused on a lot of history and philosophy on a Sunday morning, because that's when you usually have a lot of visitors who, who need to hear a little more biblical exposition, sometimes you just can't avoid that. And it's very important to understand why we why we, using the term as an, a sort of an editorial we, why we in the late 20th century have come to this place of conflict over worship. It is a battle zone in many churches, and some of you know that. Some of you are here because of that. Some of you have uh, family members who are going to churches where the worship is characterized by uh, contemporary Christian music, this whole movement that has come along since the 60s. And we need to understand this because if we're to worship by means of truth, as I pointed out the last few weeks, what that means is that there is an absolute standard that governs all categories of worship. There is a a universal truth. And last time I pointed out that, that what happens within the framework of the contemporary Christian music movement is that the term worship has been co-opted now to refer simply to the singing to the praise and worship music and the kind of singing that is going on reflect these praise and worship choruses. Now, I haven't gotten into a lot of uh, analysis of some of those yet, and we'll do that some uh, next week and, and in subsequent studies. But right now, I'm just focusing on the idea of the kind of music that we use. The battleground is over this concept of truth. And so we're, we're working through that, that concept. The Bible gives us specific revelation regarding creation, that man was created in the image and likeness of God, and pre-fall Adam reflected the nature of God. And of all the different attributes that God had, one aspect that we're focusing on here is that of a creativity, that man would reflect the creativity of God in what he did. And we see this worked out in various ways in the Scripture, but following Genesis 3... Man's creativity is marred by his depravity and by his corruption and by the fall. And so that which uh, man does in terms of worship is frequently marred by the fall and by thinking that is consistent with idolatry, thinking that somehow takes elements of the creation, blows it out of proportion, elevates it to a particular uh, uh, priority that it, where it becomes idolatrous 
in and of itself. And we see this, I pointed this out last time in, in more detail, but that, that what has happened within the, the rationale of the contemporary Christian worship movement is the idea that there are no universals to govern music, that music is basically uh, amoral. There are, there's no such thing as good music or bad music as long as you just take Christian words and adapt them to, uh, to any, any music, whatever it may be, that that's just fine. You can virtually baptize the music with Christian lyrics. And we see this in a quote from uh, Rick Warren. Rick Warren's gained a lot of publicity. I'm not up here to just take pot shots at Rick Warren, but he is one of the movers and shakers in the whole Christian growth movement. He's risen to a tremendous amount of, of national uh, recognition, notoriety because of his two books, uh, The Purpose Driven Church and The Purpose Driven Life. And as such, he is someone who has set the tone, set the framework for what is going on in many of these churches. In fact, what you find is that, and we'll get into the ecumenicalism of cr- contemporary Christian music later on, but what you find is that everybody wants to, every pastor, it seems, wants to have a mega church. And they want to have a lot of people and they want to, uh, uh, have huge churches. So everybody's following the blueprints laid out by two major thinkers, Rick Warren, who's at Saddleback Community Church in Southern California, and uh, Bill Hybels, who's at Willow Creek Community Church up in the Chicago area. And you can go to this city, and you'll see a lot of uh, advertisements on television for some of the mega churches around Houston. They're all following the same blueprint. It doesn't matter what their denominational background is. They all want to follow this same same basic blueprint, and this is at the core of the kind of thinking that you find in, that governs contemporary Christian music. Well, this is what Rick Warren says. Quote, I reject the idea that music styles can be judged as either good or bad music. Who decides this? The kind of music you like is determined by your background and culture. See, that's terribly postmodern. I understand it's your culture, that's your view, some African has his view, that's his view. It's, it just it fits with multiculturalism and postmodernism. He goes on to say, music is nothing more than an arrangement of notes and rhythms. Trust me, the musically inclined people that I know who are trained would flunk him in any music class just for that statement alone. Uh, music, he says, is nothing more than an arrangement of notes and rhythms. That's like saying... A beautifully built house is nothing more than bricks and wood. That's not what made it a beautiful piece of architecture. He says it's the words that make a song spiritual. There's no such thing as, quote, Christian music, he says, only Christian lyrics. If I were to play a tune for you without any words, you wouldn't know if if it was a Christian song or not. Well, see... That just shows he's not very well trained. He doesn't know how to think. He's an- See, that's a problem. The whole contemporary Christian music movement comes out of, as I've said before, the charismatic movement. A lot of people don't know those connections, but, but the, Christ- the church growth movement itself has been driven since the late 60s and early 70s by men who were also uh, quasi-charismatic. And all of this comes together, but the problem is that the average person in the pew doesn't spend hours and hours and hours and hours studying the trends of church history and where these things come from. Most pastors don't. 
And uh, I probably know more about this than most simply because when I did my doctoral work at Dallas Seminary, my focus was on the history of the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century. Of course, there wasn't a Pentecostal movement before that, but that was the focus. What they basically argue is that the words are what matter, not the music. The music has no meaning. The music itself has no message. Well, I've been showing why that's wrong. Last time, I used the example of one time I remember when I was in high school. I was somewhere. I don't remember where it was, but it was popular to take the words to Amazing Grace and sing them to other tunes. And one of the tunes that we sang Amazing Grace to was the House of the Rising Sun, which was a pop song in the 60s that popularized a cat house or brothel in New Orleans. Well, you can't separate the words from the music. And a lot of people, when they hear that tune, they automatically, they may be singing those words of Amazing Grace, but they're thinking the words of the House of the Rising Sun, right? So you see, it creates a, a, a conflict. It creates this dichotomy. You have music that is popular and associated with one thing and words that are, are Christian, but you're setting up a tension, an unresolved tension that is still embedding stuff into the soul of people because music is at its core very emotional. That's why it's so important to think about. Plato used to talk about how dangerous music was because you can take any philosophy any worldview, any teaching, and you can put it to very catchy, popular music that people love, and you're driving a message and a worldview and the words home into that person's soul, and they're not even aware of what's happening because they're just enjoying the music and rocking to the music. So we have to be very careful. Now, y'all buy that, right? Now I'm going to really come close to home. Some of us are familiar with a, another uh, way of taking mu- Christian music and attaching it to what many of us would consider good music, classical music. For example, the aria uh, Nessun Dorma from Puccini's uh, Turandot is a beautiful melody. Many of us love that and enjoy that as opera within its context. But how many of us really know the context? See, I really didn't know the context. I'm not, I enjoy opera, but I had never seen that opera and hadn't, had not ever studied the story. What Puccini did in the creation of this uh, uh, Italian opera was that he, the story is related to pagan Chinese culture, and that's portrayed in the, in the uh, story and in the music. He used a pentatonic melodic a format to remind us of that Eastern orientation to the music. The aria itself in its original setting is about sexual context, and the music is designed to be very sensual to reinforce the message. Now, if you don't know anything about opera, and I wasn't familiar with that, I just loved that when good Christian words were set to that music. But once you become aware of what the, mus- what the original context is and what that music was designed to communicate as, it, as he matched the music with the words, you realize that once again, by doing that, you're doing just the same thing as trying to sing Amazing Grace to the House of the Rising Sun. You know, I've heard other stories recently about people who've taken things from Phantom of the Opera and tried to put Christian words to it. And that, again, sets up the same dichotomy, the same clash. What you're trying to do is communicate Christian content in the clothing of the culture. Now, why can't we understand? This isn't legalism, folks. This is common sense. But the problem is, if you have 
pastors and music leaders who can't think very deeply about culture and worldliness, and they've never thought through concepts like worldview and how that affects music, then what they do is they create these tensions within their congregation just in the music itself, and this is this this is extremely extremely tragic. In the past few weeks, what we've studied, we started off looking at worship and our definition of worship. I think Dr. Kate talked about worship this last week as, as Thanksgiving is bringing an offering to God, and that's one element of worship. I've wrestled with trying to find an umbrella term related to the Greek and Hebrew words, and the idea in both of those uh, languages is that worship is submission to the authority of God. So ultimately what worship is, is when we come into the context of divine content and revelation that we are willing to submit and subordinate every element of our thinking to the authority of God's Word. And that's just not thinking about salvation, thinking about our own sinfulness, thinking about our spiritual life. It's thinking about every category of life. For if we truly believe that the Word of God is sufficient for all areas and that it is the revelation of the Creator who created everything from economics to the environment. He created everything from biology and botany to uh, recreation and to labor. He is the foundation for everything that ultimately, if we're going to talk about anything, any intellectual pursuit, whether it's literature, whether it's law, whether it's language. In this last week, uh, one of the professors from Chafer Seminary, uh, Tim Nichols, did a fabulous presentation on, on language and hermeneutics, developing a framework for thinking about language from Genesis chapter 1, where in the third verse of Genesis you read, and God said. That's our starting point for developing any understanding of language is God speaks. So the Word of God must be our starting point for anything. And that's, that's important for, for most of you because you're in careers and hobbies and avocations and vocations that where you're not spending 24-7 in the Word of God. Maybe you're an educator. Maybe you're a financial advisor. Maybe you are a lawyer. Maybe you are... Uh, an artist, maybe you're a musician. Whatever field you're in, the Word of God has something to say about the structure of your thinking operating within that field. So we got into this trap of this dichotomy between laity and clergy, between this higher level of Christian, uh, full-time Christian service. Those are the priests, the, the clergy, those are the people who are missionaries. They're really serving God. I'm just a peon out here doing accounting. Uh, I'm not really serving God. And yet when we understand things biblically, we serve God in every capacity whatsoever. And so we have to learn to think in terms of a biblical framework as we approach all of those particular things. And so our lives become an aspect of worship. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is part of our spiritual service of worship. There we have the word uh, liturgos in the Greek, which is where we get our word liturgy, but it's that idea of serving God. That is another element of worship. Worship is subordinating our thinking to God's will so that we can then serve God with the totality of our lives. 
Now, we've started off this series thinking about music because that's what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5 is they're singing praises to God and to the Lamb of God in the heavenly scene. And we're focusing on understanding music because, as I pointed out last time, music is really a Trojan horse of pagan worldviews. As we, if we adopt forms of music for the expression of Christian content, if that music reflects a pagan worldview, then we've created a conflict. I pointed out last time that we all understand this, perhaps in other contexts, that ideas have consequences. And ideas are expressed uh, in terms of worldview, that a worldview isn't a formal philosophy as such, but it's a set of ideas or beliefs about the nature and the operation of reality, the purpose, meaning, direction of life. It includes uh, why we're here, who created us, whether there is a God, all the way to uh, future destiny, rewards, judgment, evaluation, all of those things. A worldview, I pointed out last time, answers the basic questions of life. So people have worldviews, and whether you've thought it out or not, if you are an artist, if you are a craftsman, if you are a musician, your worldview is going to come out in your art, in your music, in your uh, creativity. There will be reflections of your basic orientation and understanding uh, of life. As we study these things and we accept the principle that ideas have consequences, as you trace the change of ideas down through the centuries, and someday I'm going to do a series on this, it'll where we can get into this in some more detail because it's fascinating to study that when worldview changes, a culture changes. When worldview changes, a culture changes. This has positive and negative effects. For example, in, as we looked at the change from the medieval period dominated by Neoplatonism and its shift into the Aristotelianism that became popular through the church, through Thomas Aquinas and others, now, one of the things that we noticed is that it put a, a, a more proper emphasis on nature and creation and things as they actually were. It got away from that kind of a two-dimensional idealism that was expressed in the art. We'll show some, go review that in just a second. So it had positive elements. It had positive factors in that the, the words that were sung to the music in Byzantine chants weren't under, understandable and it wasn't necessary to understand them. It was all about just creating a form of mood music, sort of like what we have today. And that comes is related to mysticism and other changes. We've gone back to other forms of mysticism today. But we see that as the music changes with the worldview, the music then reinforces and promotes the new worldview. It, it becomes a purveyor of the idea so that the music becomes loaded with a message. We must always remember that music is never value neutral. It's never worldview neutral. It is always an outgrowth of the presuppositions that govern the culture. So you have to understand the culture that produces the music, and then you can understand the message of the music. In other words, we have to think a little bit, not just relax and emote. And that's part of this whole conflict we have today is because worship has been defined in popular literature as being a certain mood, a certain contemplative, meditative attitude. And that fits with the fact that there's been a shift in the last 20 years 
back to a, a medieval uh, asceticism and um, uh, contemplative, meditative. People are reading Teresa of Avila, and they're read, going back and reading Thomas Merton, and they're reading all these medieval mystics all of a sudden, and they think that that is leading them to a higher and deeper spirituality. And, of course, that's reflected in the kind of music. So even if you, and there are people I know who like to listen to Christian radio, and they listen to a lot of contemporary Christian stuff, and they think it's fine, it's better than listening to that rock stuff over on the other channel, but they don't realize that the music carries a message, and the words, and we'll see this next time, the words in many of the songs have are, are defined not are defined in a from a charismatic theology background, and they come loaded with the basic assumption that I got to get you into the right mood, and that mood is defined as a worshipful, reverent mood. In other words, it's driven by emotion; it's not driven by thought. And and one of the problems we have with evangelicalism in America for the last hundred years is it's been driven by an anti-intellectualism. We have to learn to think. And I used to have a seminary professor that says, you know, it's pretty tough to think, but it's tough, tougher still to think about our thinking. You think about that for a while. It's tough to think, but it's tough to think about our thinking, especially when we're we're in this box and we're trying to think within the context of our own culture. It's easy to analyze somebody else's culture, but it's tough, tough to have the objectivity to evaluate, to evaluate our own culture. Well, we've gone through early medieval period, the Byzantine period, and on up through the Renaissance and the Reformation and up into the 18th century to establish the principle that ideas have consequences, that when worldview changes, music changes. And if we're going to think accurately about and be able to think critically and evaluate the music of our own day and the music that is being brought into the church, then we have to understand what the ideological influences have been, uh, the intellectual influences have been on music because as, as the ideas change, the music changes. So I've gone through a number of things and I want to remind you that it's all about, ultimately about truth, that this belief that there are universal truths that we can derive from Scripture to govern every aspect of life. Francis Schaeffer said that Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality. There's nothing that escapes it. Music isn't somehow uh, over here separate, uh, divorced from an absolute universal umbrella of biblical truth. So he says truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. It always leads to life, to how we think, how we live, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, some of the aspects that I've used in here I get from, or some of the concepts I get from Schaefer. And so we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, basically what we're doing for you visitors is that we've gone through key passages in Scripture, such as John 4.24, Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah comes before the throne of God and worships God, Ephesians 5.18 to 19, talking about the filling of the Spirit, resulting in singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. The same thing is stated in Colossians 3.16 to 18. That provides a parameter of thought within which we have 
biblical worship. So we're thinking in terms of application here. Uh, application isn't just three points you give at the end of a message. Sometimes you spend three or four weeks doing detailed analysis of the text to set your boundaries and then maybe spend two or three weeks just talking about how we apply all of that. You see, you can't cover it all in a 20-minute sermonette because the scriptures are coming from an omniscient God or just a little deeper and more profound than that. Well, I use this analogy of an upper story, lower story house. The house pictures all of reality. I modified this a little bit, but I got this from, this, this idea really comes from Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he had three earlier, early works that he did, Escape from Reason, The God Who Is There, and He Is There, and He Is Not Silent. I read them all three times, had no clue what he was really talking about back around 1974. And then that, um, that, Sometime that year, I think that summer, uh, Cheryl Calvert, who's sitting back here back then, she was Cheryl Hannish, uh, was in from Lubbock Bible Church, from Lubbock, Texas. She was going to Texas Tech, and she was going to Charlie Clough's church, and I ran into her, and I asked her about where she was going to church, and she said she was going to uh, Lubbock Bible Church. I said, great, well, how's Charlie Clough doing? And she said, well, he's doing great. Here, I have some tapes right here I'll give you. You can listen to them, and they were a short basic series that Charlie taught back then, and he was basically explaining to these college kids what Francis Schaeffer was all about. So I realize that for many of you sitting out there who've never been exposed to this kind of thinking or this framework, that this is tough new material. I, I've, I've been there, so I'm trying to. I'm doing a lot of review on this just because you need to hear this three or four times before you have that aha moment. <laughs> I think I know what he's saying. Okay, I understand. We start back with the Greeks, and there's this basic dichotomy between the form and ideas up in this ideal world, and that's where Plato located reason, rationality, order, truth, and beauty. These, that's where real reality was. And down in the, in the gray area down below, I have that because his analogy was a cave. And all you see in the cave is a, a shadow. It's like there's a big light back here and you're, you know, you're doing shadow images on the wall. You don't know how to make a dog or a rabbit or anything like that. Well, that's his idea. And, and he said that, that all we ever see is just that shadow reflected on the wall. So everything that we see in this world is just a, an imitation of this ultimate ideal reality. So matter is, for him, matter, matter was chaos, irrational, and evil. Well, this impacted the church in the early church as Neoplatonism, and the area of ideas or forms became, called, became known as the arena of grace. That's still the location of eternal reason, spirituality, order, truth, and beauty. And matter is no longer evil, it's good, but it's not really meaningful. You've got to get into this upper story area of spirituality. In other words, the clergy's up on top and the laity's down below. Does that communicate? Real life, real meaning is when you're, you're doing God things. And everything else is just sort of secondary. Well, that doesn't fit the Bible. That was one of the things that got overhauled in the Reformation. Uh, Augustine, Anselm, or as Catholics refer to him as Augustine, Anselm, and Bonaventure were some of the key thinkers. And the Middle Ages, you see this in the type of art. See, it's, it's two-dimensional, it's ideal, these aren't real people. It's meant to, for us to think in, more in terms of these universal forms and ideas. Then we get into your major shift with Aquinas in the um, uh, 12th century, and he 
changes things a little bit. Grace becomes a super gift, an optional feature. Grace, that is what God provides in the realm of revelation, isn't essential to meaning, purpose, and happiness. Well, the good side of this is what he's done is he's elevated nature. Nature wasn't important in Neoplatonism. So it's just when you see nature portrayed, it's, it's very abstract. It's just in the background. It's not important because matter really isn't, isn't that, that significant. But now nature becomes important. So in nature, uh, when it starts impacting the Renaissance, art starts portraying landscapes as they actually appear and people as they actually appear. And in, in Renaissance art, you could look at uh, some Renaissance artist painting of a Madonna and child and go, oh, yeah, that's his mistress. I mean, you could identify her. That's what they did a lot of times is they painted their mistress, and that was the Madonna. And um, But you could identify the person. You knew who they, exactly who it was that they painted because there was an element of realism there. Now, what happens that's so crucial here is that in that upper story, Aquinas put the canon of Scripture. It's one book of truth, one source of truth. In the lower story, you have other sources of truth, uh, biology, psychology, math, economics, things of that nature. And, and the, although uh, he didn't really intend this, the effect of what he was doing was to elevate to the same level as revelatory truth, truth that you derive from nature or from empiricism, so they become competing and equal sources of truth. On the Renaissance, this really works itself out so that when they look at nature, Renaissance thinkers have elevated man. Man becomes the measure of all things, the standard of truth. These other books of nature, uh, science, biology, geology, then bring one level of truth, uh, Revelation brings another level of truth, and they become two competing levels of truth. And this led to something called natural theology. Some of you may have read that term. You say, well, what is natural theology? Well, natural theology is the idea that we can look at nature and come to just as firm a conclusions about God as we can from, from the Word of God. Now, the Bible recognizes something called general revelation in Romans 1, that we can learn certain things about God that are evident in his creation. That's, not what, gen, that's what, not what natural theology is saying. Natural theology is saying is we can come to, this, to certain firm conclusions that have the same authority as that which we get from Scripture. Also, you get natural law comes out of this. It's those other books of, of revelation. And a little phrase that comes out of this is a phrase, all truth is God's truth. Now, some of you sit there and say, well, ain't it true? If, if you have something in another field that is truly true, it would be God's truth, wouldn't it? That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that, that you know, the, the truth that you get in sociology or in uh, uh, Darwinistic evolutionary class, that's scientific truth. That's just as true as God's truth. See, all truth is ultimately God's truth. It sets up all this uh, conflict and understanding truth, and that sets the stage for the later uh, Enlightenment. Uh, in art, they portrayed realism, people as they were, and you see that in, um, in the artwork of the Middle Ages. Now we have a massive shift that takes place. I've gotten this far a couple of times, and we have to think about this. There's a radical shift that takes place. In, in the Enlightenment period, the focus is that human reason and human interpretation can bring us to truth and to hope. There is unified knowledge out there. We can get there. 
We may disagree as to what it is, but everybody believed there was unified truth that could bring meaning and purpose to life apart from revelation. That man could do it on his own. Man is the measure of all things. And this pretty much fell apart with the skepticism of David Hume. And then along comes a key thinker, Immanuel Kant, with his book, Critique of Pure Reason, and several other books that, that he did. And with Immanuel Kant, there is a massive shift. It's like a, an intellectual earthquake that reverses everything in Western civilization from that point on. You cannot understand what's happened from since the American war between the states to the present without understanding Immanuel Kant. If you want to know why is it that you can have a a press secretary for the president be asked, uh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The president just said that he didn't have sexual relations with that woman six months ago, and now he says he did, which is true. And the press secretary says, well, they both are. And not crack a smile, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they just eat it up. How can that happen? Well, you, you have to understand what happens back with Kant. Why do we have heavy metal, grunge rock, uh, rap music, all of this kind of stuff today? Where did that come from? What happened to the, the beauty of Western civilization with, with Bach and, and Mozart and Handel? Where did, where did, what happened to our taste in beauty and music? How can you get, get, produce artists like like Maplethorpe and others who were just doing this horrendous stuff, or, a, or Marcel Duchamp. How do, how do you get this out of this Christian heritage and worldview? Well, you have to start with Kant. That, you, we wouldn't have an El- I know this may hurt some of you, but you wouldn't have an Elvis Presley, the Beatles, or the Who if you didn't have Kant. He changed how people thought about reality. And it leads to skepticism and existentialism, in the 19th and 20th century. Frankly, if you didn't have Immanuel Kant, you would never have had an Adolf Hitler. Okay, he changes the way people think about culture, life, everything. And it ultimately ends up in postmodernism. In science, we had something called the Copernican Revolution, just to help you understand what's going on here. In the Copernican Revolution, prior to Copernicus, people believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system and everything rotate or rotated around the around the earth and then after Copernicus they understood that the sun was the center so the center shifted in terms of our understanding of the universe and the place of the earth in the universe with Kant you have what is called the Copernican revolution in knowledge or truth prior to Kant truth was external to man they may debate what it was they may debate how to get there, but everybody believed the truth was objective and knowable. We're just not sure how to get there, no matter who, what your position was. It, truth was Prior to Kant, truth was objective, it was knowable, and it was certain. But after Kant, truth was only internal. It's only subjective. It's not knowable, for sure, and it's not certain. In other words, I, can, I only know what I see. I don't know it as it is in itself. So remember the, the, the paintings from the, from the Renaissance and from the uh, Reformation periods? The artists are painting people as they are. But that gets lost after Kant because we can't know anything as it is anymore. So it's an attack on knowledge. And it affects, it goes this way, it affects art first, then it affects music, 
and then it affects theology. And what happens in theology now is you can't know truth anymore. All you have, you're left with is your own subjective emotions. That's the essence of, of Protestant liberalism. That's what Friedrich Schleiermacher, who lived about the same time as Kant, said was, was religion is all about your emotions. It's all about the subjective. And see, this stuff starts off with the uh, intellectuals who are teaching at the university level. It filters down through art and music and theology until now you have the average kid on the street in Harlem is a nihilistic postmodern existentialism. He doesn't know what that means, but that's what he is. That's how he thinks. That's how you think. You just don't know it because you don't know the characteristic, because you're just as much a product of your culture as they are. It's just that you've managed to get rid of some of that because of uh, the teaching of the Word of God. So here's how Kant builds his house. In the lower story, you have the details, what he called the phenomena, the, the details of life. You have observable phenomena like the chairs and this pulpit and people, things like that, all the da- data. You have words. When it comes to interpreting literature, you have the words that are in the text. You have music in and of itself. You have things, all the things in creation, uh, law, all of these and in events, language, all of this is part of the details of life. Now, in the upper story, remember, this was the area of Kant's ideals, the area of Aquinas' grace, all of that. Upper story, you have the universals. This is what gives meaning to what's down below. And you have this Kant called the noumena. Up in this area, you have absolutes, morals, and God. This is where you have spirituality. But he says, see, up to this point, there's been a staircase. You could go from the bottom upstairs to find meaning and purpose and value in life. But with Kant, he says, you can only know your perceptions. You can't know things as they are. So there's a brick wall there. You can't get upstairs anymore. You can't really know God. God can't speak to man. Man can't find God. There's just this brick wall. You can't know anything for sure. You can only know your feelings about God. You can only know your, your impressions. But God can't speak to you. He, it, it's unknowable. And so where this goes is ultimately with Nietzsche and nihilism. And it's just you're just left in a pit of despair. You can't know who you are anymore. You can't know truth anymore. Because all you can know is details. So you're just in, in, in despair. So there's no meaning there's no God. There's no purpose. Everything is random chance and chaos. Ch- random chance and chaos rule everything. See how that fits over into science and, and evolutionary thought with Darwin, time plus chance equals perfect order, right? You know, you just take, the, take that box of, uh, of alphabets and pour it out on the table and it's automatically going to form words, Right? Uh, you're left with existential darkness and despair. Oh, and, and, and people felt that in the 19th century. The artists felt that. It begins to impact how they look at, at reality. So we're going to look at, at some examples of this. You first, you begin to really see this in Impressionism. In Impressionism. And one last point here from this chart. Now, truth is no longer objective. It's what you perceive. So you have your truth, and I, that's where it goes. You have your truth, I have my truth. Let's just get together and emote over how good it is that we all have our own truth. 
Regarding impressionism, I have one quote here. I don't know who said this, but it's a good statement about impressionism. Many of us like impressionist art. I'm not saying it's wrong or it's evil, but you have to understand where it's coming from. They have masterful use of light and color and some real breakthroughs there, but, but it also reflects their worldview. If we must characterize them, that is, the impressionist artists, with one explanatory word, we would have to coin a new term, impressionism. They are impressionists in that they render not the landscape, in other words, the landscape as it is, but the sensation evoked by the landscape, in other words, what it does inside me. See that shift from objective reality to not as it is, but how I perceive it. Max Lieberman, who is a German Impressionism, said, Impressionism is not a movement. It is a philosophy of life. Wow. You know, this isn't just that they discovered new techniques of painting. They looked at the world differently than people did 100 years before. Uh, Camille Pissarro, who's another Impressionist, said, Don't proceed according to rules and principles, but what, paint what you observe and feel. See, you can't understand Impressionism. You, can't, you go to the museum, you see uh, Monet, you see, see the other uh, Degas and the other Impressionists. You, you think, oh, look at that. Look, look at the beautiful colors. Look at how they use light and all these other things. And, and that's just part of their being in the image of God. They are exhibiting their creatureliness in God's image and doing beautiful things. But there's also something else there because they're wrestling with a new reality that leaves them in the locked into subjectivity, and they understand that. And that, the same thing is happening in, um, in music. I have one uh, musical element here that I'm going to play that is from um, um, Debussy's La Mer. It's called Jeu de Vague, The Play of the Waves. And I want you to, while you're looking at these pictures, see what happens here is they paint as they see. So it doesn't have the, the rigid lines and demarcation, almost like a photograph that you see in, in Renaissance art and in earlier art. Now it, it's painted through the eyes. of This is how the light comes to the, to the painter, how he sees the in, individual. And so it becomes much more uh, subjective in its orientation and much more emotive in its orientation. The same thing happens... Uh, with the music, and in this music, you can almost hear the flickers of light and color. But also, I want you to pay attention to the fact that you don't walk away just kind of humming the tune and you know, that either. Okay, let's see if we can get this all this sound to work here. along the way. We have Renoir, uh, the dance at uh, Bougival. Renoir again. Notice the light. Notice you can see the person as they are. You can recognize that person. You could recognize the location. But it doesn't have the crispness that you had uh, had earlier. Now we get into Degas. See, it becomes a little more otherworldly. It, it, it's becoming, you're losing more and more form and structure. And then we come to Monet's Sunset at Lavacour. And see, it's almost dreamlike. 
you're losing nature again because you're searching for some kind of universal principle. What's rising at the same time, with the, uh, you get a level of mysticism coming out of the romanticism, the romanticism of the earlier 19th century. So it's designed to evoke something in the person looking at it, to, to reach them at a, at, a, at a level of emotion there. Its meaning is now uh, subjective. Okay, let's, let's move on from there to, uh, let me pause that, move on to the next level. I really wasn't go, going here, but I ran across some stuff that I just couldn't avoid. It just ties it all together, and that is to jump forward into modern uh, music and art. Just remember, we're making the point that when the worldview changes, it changes how we express what we see and how we express it in terms of uh, literature, art, music, all these things are tied together. In modern music and art, the big names in art are Marcel Duchamp, Jasper Johns. I remember uh, <clears throat> I always joke about going to a Jasper Johns exhibit down at the, uh, where was that, at the uh, Demonil uh, 12 years ago. And he had this, remember guys, the old army flashlights that came up and they had a right angle at the time. He clipped it on. That, that was art. There was one right there. I said, I got one of those buried in the backyard somewhere. It's might be a little rusty. Let me dig it up. How much is that worth? But see, my name isn't Jasper John, so it doesn't have any value. Uh, Marcel Duchamp had the same kind of thing happen to him a couple of times. He, one time he came up with a, like a Coke bottle for, a, for an artwork and didn't put his name on it. And he, nobody thought anything about it. Then he put his name on it. Everybody, ooh, wow. Isn't that great art? See, it's, it's, it was anti-art. But the, in the music, you have uh, this movement from uh, Debussy to Schoenberg to John Cage. And Cage becomes a, a sort of a mentor, a, a background to understand the music of, of Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd was very much into Eastern mysticism as was Cage, we'll talk about Cage a little bit here. I've got some clips from, from him just so you get a feel for what this is all about. But uh, Cage was a Buddhist. He really thought his music would be sort of an evangelistic tool to bring people into Buddhism. And he influenced these other folks, and they all have different elements of Eastern mysticism, as does Pink Floyd. And one of the sad things that I've heard in recent years, really sad, is just again to show that people don't understand what they're doing with music is of a, of a doctrinal church, as a matter of fact, they ought to think they'd know better, but, you know, I've learned most people don't, is that they play, actually played Pink Floyd's song, Money, for an offertory. I mean, this is just sad. I mean, if we're going to do that, why don't we just go be, become Eastern Orthodox? I mean, we're doing the same thing. We're just, we're just reinterpreting Christianity totally within a pagan uh, pagan worldview. Well, what happens in modern music and modern art is it begins to eliminate the human element. See, man, is a, from a Christian worldview, man is designed to imitate the creator. But now the human element is going to be removed. Concepts such as creativity are, are transformed, if not removed altogether. Uh, the idea of an artist laboring to create an object of aesthetic beauty with depth, complexity, Creating something reflecting or generating an illusion of reality is now completely lost. All talk of beauty and meaning are rejected. Why is that? 
Darwinism cannot explain beauty. If everything is random chance and just happens, how do you come up with beauty? Another thing they can't explain is laughter. Pay attention to that. I just say beauty and laughter. Laughter, uh, fancy word for it, is risibility. One of those words I learned when I took philosophy. Risibility. Man is the ability to laugh. Nobody, none of the creatures have the ability to laugh. Humor, that is unique to man. Darwinism can't explain these things. Can't even explain language either, how that, that developed. So this comes along and it's developed in, in art and music. Now, let me see here. I have a couple of quotes here. One is from Willem, Willem de Kooning, who was an abstract expressionist painter. And this is what he says about Jackson Pollock, otherwise known as Jack the Dripper. Uh, Ever so often, a painter has to destroy painting. Cezanne did it. You didn't know that, did you? See, this is what they're saying about themselves. Cezanne did it. Picasso did it with cubism. Then Pollock did it. He busted our idea of a picture all to hell. Then there could be new paintings again. Then Rudy Blesch, writing in 1956 in Modern Art USA, comments about, about Pollock said everyone had been talking about a way to get the explosive moment of creation on the canvas. He, that is, Pollock, had just done it. Simply turned the paint loose in the air without a parachute. See, what Pollock would do is he'd lay the canvas flat on the ground and hang paint cans up in the ceiling and poke holes in them and just get get them swinging and let it drip all over the canvas, and and that was art. So he said, he's done it. He, He turned the paint loose in the air without a parachute. A violent Duchamp. See, he relates that back to Marcel Duchamp. One of these days I'd like to tie all this together, but we just had to skip too much. Not gravely accepting the laws of chance. Now, here's where they run into a problem. And he recognizes this. He says, he, he flings the door open to chaos because it's supposed to be, everything's supposed to be pure random and chaos, everything's swinging, no order, but it has to follow the patterns of God's creation. It's got to flow in straight lines or circles or arcs. He can't escape at, at an ultimate level the realities embedded in, in God's creation. It can't be pure random or pure chaos. He's trying to do that. But what he notes is he flings the door open to chaos, but order marshaled itself in all that wilderness. These, those violent forces, the whirls, the plunges, the thrusts, began to float in an equilibrium of violence against violence. Notice the emphasis on violence here. It dehumanizes man. See, this is coming to full fruition in, in, in the 20th century. So here we have uh, Jackson Pollock. Okay, just this is mural on Indian red ground. Now, I want to play a couple of things for you because we want to shift to music. And we want to shift over to John Cage. And John Cage is, is, is where all this goes in terms of music. Just everything is, is, is pure, purely random. Uh, where did my... See, I've gotten away from my notes here. I've got to get back to... Where's Cage? Cage, Cage, Cage. Okay. We get back to Cage. Everything is purely, purely random. And I've got a couple of interviews here for you to, to listen to. This is the uh, first one. Uh, let's slip over here. Am I there? When I hear what we call music. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There. 
Listen to him explain his music. It's not coming out through the... Uh, Not coming out through the sound. Okay. When I hear what we call music. Yeah, that was. Oh, that was just. It seems to me. You know, I got this work. Every working that someone we. Someone is talking. Okay. And talking about his feelings. Are about his ideas. Music ideas. is feelings. But when I hear uh, traffic, the sound of traffic. Well, let me back here on Sixth Avenue. Having trouble loading. Okay, let's. When I hear what we call music, it seems to me that someone is talking, and talking about his feelings, or about his uh, ideas of relationships but when I hear uh, traffic the sound of traffic here on 6th Avenue for instance I don't have the feeling that anyone is talking I have the feeling that uh, it's all feeling okay I don't know why all of a sudden everything is sound is acting and I love the activity of sound. What it does is it gets louder. Well, I'm just going to stop that. That's too frustrating. Uh, he just goes on and he talks about about um, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to do that. He talks about music. And one of his more famous Works is four minutes and 33 seconds. I'm going to let this kind of load. Cage wrote four minutes 33 as a piece in three movements where the performer does absolutely nothing, allowing the audience to absorb the sounds around them. Everyone experiencing the piece in a different way, therefore, because we all hear things in a different way. Tonight, the piece is being presented in a full orchestral version conducted by Lawrence Foster. He's going to give a downbeat to each of the three movements. He'll turn pages when he needs to, and of course, the orchestra will remain silent, we hope, throughout the piece. I reckon Cage would have been pretty pleased uh, that this piece is... Okay, you got that now. It's four. What Cage did when he first performed, he came out, he put the lid down on the piano, he didn't do anything for four minutes and 33 seconds. The music is just the random sounds of the audience. It's up to each person in the audience to invest his own meaning into it. And what this guy says is this is the first time it's been broadcast on television, and this is a whole new dimension because now every person out there in the audience watching TV can invest their own meaning into it. So meaning is totally, completely within the, the, the mind of the observer. Now my question for Cage is this. Uh, what would he say if I said that the meaning of 433 is that there was ultimately order and structure in the universe because what you hear is the sounds of creation. And what this is then doing is it's, it's glorifying God and the creator who, who redeemed us. See, he would have to say, no, 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 I didn't mean that. See, there's an eternal conflict there. Unregenerate man living in his idea of the world ultimately has to conform to God's idea of the world. And so the point that I'm making in, in these various uh, uh, interviews that I put up here was to give you just a simple idea of what has happened historically, that the music has become 
um, very, very uh, subjective, and it's it's dehumanized now. It's just noise. It's random noises. It's done with machines. Man, as the image of God, as a creator, is totally out of the equation. You just love that, don't you? Now, remember, this is the guy whose philosophy of music informs the Beatles and informs Led Zeppelin, informs people. Remember, all of that, you can't separate it. He sets up what happens afterward in music. And everything after this is music is defined. The meaning of the music is no longer external and objective. It's all defined by what it means to you. So we can then come into the church and we can come up with all kinds of, use everybody's music and any music because what it means to you is what's important. You get to define the qualities and characteristics of worship. You get to tell God that, God, you have to accept my worship because I'm so sincere about it that I'm going to be the one. Man is going to be the ultimate reference point, the measure of what becomes music. So let's let's wrap up. I've gone through a lot of stuff, and I've got about eight quick points. Because we're, I know we're running out of time, but as you can tell, this is such... Uh, complex subject. It's difficult to deal with in a... Um, let me find, get back to my slideshow here. See, this is modern art. It just has no order meaning. This is Juan Miro. And we'll get beyond that. Just let, I'll put a little Pollock up here for you to think about while we're as a visual while... See the conflict between trying to get you to think in terms of order and meaning and reason and you got that up there? See, and that's what's happening with, with music. It just, just gets random. Okay. First principle is music should involve unity and diversity. Remember, God is one, but he's also three. There are, there are uh, things that unify creation, and then there are things that are distinct. When I talk about a tree, you all know what I'm talking about, but there's oak trees, and there's palm trees, and there's mimosa trees, and there's all kinds of different trees. There's diversity in creation, but there's also... Unity, in the same way music should have melody and harmony, there should be a strong melody that people can sing, that people can learn. And, and I've been told by people who are musicians that unless you're just absolutely stone deaf, almost, and I didn't say tone deaf, I said stone deaf, almost anybody can learn to sing. And congregations need to learn how to sing. Unfortunately, singing isn't taught in schools much anymore. Uh, they're taught to just imitate what they hear. They're not taught how to read music. And uh, many of you may not know how to read music, but, but we should if we're going to uh, sing uh, good praises to God. Secondly, the music that we sing should be well-written and executed well, not just at a haphazard uh, manner. It should not be trite. It shouldn't be simply three chords repeated endlessly, which is what you have in, in about 99.9% of contemporary uh, praise music today. It's just... Just three basic chords, and they think that's complex. Uh, third, it should have complexity. Think of the artistry in the temple, in the tabernacle, that was the result of the Holy Spirit giving skill to Bezalel and Aholiab. Think of the complexity of the words in the Psalms. 
those psalms are so complex that it would demand complex music to carry it. Not, not you know, three-chord Johnnies out there. Uh, fourth, it moves towards a resolution and ends. Now, I'll play you some stuff next time. You just see it just goes on and on and on. It never ends. We'll see God ends things. History is moving towards resolution. Uh, music should end, move towards resolution and an ending. Uh, fifth point, it's not about a performance. You know, you don't have a praise and worship band up here uh, uh, performing just no differently than a rock concert. Sixth, the music should be composed to fit the words. It's about the words, not the music. The words drive the music, not the other way around. But what you have today is music is adopted, in, and, and you can go to a praise and worship uh, praise uh, worship leader websites and they teach you how to go through certain chord progressions and how to move the music up a half step and then a half step to manipulate the emotions of the audience to get them into the right mood for worship. But guess what? Then they can't think afterwards and so they have to have a 20-minute sermonette and they can't quite handle that. Seventh point then, the music should enhance the message. The music should prepare the worshiper to think and concentrate and focus on being able to listen to a one-hour message that's teaching you things you never heard before. Uh, eighth, the content of the words then should impact the emotions, not the other way around. See, what the problem that people get into is every now and then you're singing a hymn, and all of a sudden what you're seeing, the words hit you. I mean, it is a powerful emotional experience. There's nothing wrong with that. Most of us have had that all of a sudden... I remember one time when I was in seminary singing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me. Wow. That just hit me. I mean, I, tears just started coming down my eyes. Now, the problem is the next time I, I, I sing, we want to have that same experience again because what happens in the carnality and the idolatry of our soul is we define the emotional response as worship. See, that was real worship. I've sung that song 200 times since then and haven't had that impact. But that one time it hit me and that happens every now and then. But we don't try to recapture the emotion by the music. It's the words. It's the thought. It's the doctrine that drives our thinking. And so the music isn't supposed to be this kind of soft, gentle uh, mood music, which is consistent with contemplative spirituality, subjective spirituality, but it should be a kind of music that supports and enhances thoughtful words that are an analysis of who God is and what he has done for us. And the purpose of the singing is to focus our attention on who God is and what he has revealed and accomplished in history. The music, then, is an aid to the words. It should focus our, our concentration on those great doctrines of Scripture that talk about the attributes of God, the work of Christ on the cross, what he accomplished, what he's doing now, what he's done in history. And as we think about those things, at times our emotions will become deeply stirred. But it's by the words, not the music. If you are using music to create these moods rather than the words, then what has happened is you have worshipped internal subjective emotions have taken reign. It's uh, like an emotional revolt. 
you put the horse of doctrine in front of the cart of emotions, and you're trying to recapture these feelings that you define as being close to God, and what you've done is you've just set up an idol of your own feelings. And that's what's happened across the board of our culture today. So we have to take music as something that has real meaning and has real impact, and we must recognize that it's the vehicle that drives the words, not the other way around. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we've had this opportunity to think through some things that we've never heard before and haven't really worked through. But it it helps us to understand why we do what we do when we come together to sing praise to you, to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs as a reflection of our orientation to God the Holy Spirit. All of this is designed to reflect our adoration of you for who you are and what you've done in providing a perfect salvation in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, who paid the penalty of our sins. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're not sure or certain of your salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him, and you will have eternal life. It can never be taken from you. It is yours forever. Right now, right where you sit, you can put your faith alone in Christ alone, and at that instant, you have everlasting life. Father, we pray for all of us that we would respond to this message, that it would cause us to think more deeply, more profoundly about the world around us, your creation, and our culture, and how it has impacted our own thoughts and ideas. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.